everyone. Welcome to Wish You'd Known. It's Danny Visser and I'm joined in the studio with Phil Anderson from the AFA, who's the General Manager of Policy and Professionalism. How are you going, Phil? Great. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And we're also joined with the usual suspect, Glenn James. Hey, Danny. How are you going? And thanks, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we can't do this podcast without the help of OnePath and Zurich, who are getting behind this industry initiative to really help having... Uh, a conversation with new entrants to advice, particularly around risk advice and those advisors who do risk in their business. And we just really want to thank OnePath and Zurich. So remember, if you are looking for more information and resources, you can follow the link in the show notes uh, to go to the Zurich OnePath zone. So again, thank you uh, to OnePath and Zurich. Now, Phil, you have a very important role with the AFA. Can you give us some insight into what your daily grind looks like? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Danny. Um, My job really covers three key areas, policy, education and professionalism. Uh, We all know uh, what education is about. We provide support to our members to get through the exam, to get through uh, the the, um, degree equivalent requirement. On on professionalism, uh, that's the disciplinary regime that the AFA runs. So I'm responsible for that. I don't think we really want to talk too much about that. That's not really the the thing that I spend most of my time on. Most of my time is the policy. Um, It's working with government, it's working with regulators. So whether it's ASIC, the Tax Practitioners Board, FASIA, um, working through parliamentary committees, trying to get the best possible policy settings we can get for the financial advice sector to have a regime that works in the best interests of consumers and make sure that advice is a sustainable and attractive business to be in. Now, I'm going to be open and honest with you and say that is a huge challenge. We've been dealing with a, a regulatory environment and a media context where there's a lot of negativity about financial advice So we start way behind in terms of trying to influence things, but that's the game that we're in. We're we're in this for the long haul. It's a long game. You can't turn political minds overnight. You've just got to keep working. You've got to work uh, at it through each party. Uh, You've got to work at it through each individual that you can influence. And it's about putting forward a, um, a story about the importance of financial advice and why all the regulatory settings need to promote and support the provision of more quality financial advice. Yeah, because it, it is a wonderful industry and I guess your airwaves are very, very busy at the moment. But despite kind of the difficult challenges, I mean, certainly I spend a lot of time in businesses and you see still some thriving, which is really exciting. So yes, there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of white noise, but the wonderful thing is it's kind of trending in the correct direction. And like that would, you know, I'd love to understand your opinion on that, Phil, whether, you know, you've been in the industry a long time, what I guess is your feeling and your vibe around the next couple of years ahead? Like, are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you defeated? Do you go home at night and cry? Like, what level are we at, Phil? Let me lift it up. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be incredibly resilient in, in my role because we lose on a regular basis. But it doesn't stop us from trying. So I, I could refer to the annual renewal legislation. We've gone through a huge amount of effort to try and improve that. Now, we have achieved significant improvements in comparison with what the government was saying in February last year, but we haven't got all that we wanted and we certainly haven't got much out of our more recent effort, despite 
um, extensive discussions with various um, important stakeholders in the government. So you've, you've got to be resilient. Mm. Uh, you've, you've got to live to fight another day. How do I feel more broadly about where we're at? I'm, I'm not going to underestimate the challenges that we face. You know, we're currently at a point where um, the numbers suggest that 53% of advisors have passed the exam and 47% who are on the register still need to achieve that by the end of this year. That will be, uh, that will be challenging. Other advisors are facing the issues around the education standard and all of the other regulatory reforms, whether it's the loss of grandfathered commissions, um, whether it's the challenge to, to life insurance. There's a lot of challenges in front of us. On the regulatory front, though, we are starting to see a turn in sentiment. So we had uh, a very difficult time through the Royal Commission. Uh, you know, there's been comments made in the media this week about it being a theatre. Well, I think it was very much a theatre. I don't think it got to the core of the value of financial advice. It didn't tell the good stories of the great work that financial advisors do. It focused on a few negative stories, but it's had a huge influence in terms of the media and also in terms of the way the government has worked um, so quickly to try and put all these reforms in place that uh, Commissioner Hain recommended. But out of the back of that, we're starting to see a change of sentiment. Last week, we had in the Senate one senator stand up and actually say in the parliament, in the Senate, hey, it's the job of the government not to just ram through Royal Commission recommendations, but to consider whether they're in the best interest of Australia. And he also then went on to say that he would like to think that the parliament could reconsider in the future whether renewal should be annual or every second year. Mm. Now, this is a really positive message. It's, it's, it's one of a number of people who are much more tuned into what's happening in financial advice and are much more sympathetic as to the challenge that these things are putting in place for good businesses to deliver quality outcomes for their clients. And I just want to jump in there and say we are recording this on the 5th of March 2021 because I think in this environment it is very important to date stamp these conversations for context. The Royal Commission into misconduct in financial services, superannuation, and everything to do with the dollar sign are hyper-political, extremely political. Just last week, the Royal Commission into aged care was released, and in contrast, the government are taking the recommendations as recommendations, not gospel do this. Do you think now that it's been two years since the RC into financial services misconduct has been handed down that we might actually be able to massage things a little bit more than Josh on the day of the RC being released saying we're just going to do everything? That's a really interesting question, Glenn, because that determination to implement what they've committed to doing is still very strong. And that's why the way it's been playing out is there's been more, I guess, pushback in the party room, but ultimately in the parliament, it's pushed ahead. Now, we, we can reflect upon this, but when you go back to it, the ALP agreed to implement the Royal Commission recommendations before they were released. That's right, <laughs> yeah. And the government agreed to implement 75 of the 76 recommendations within three days. One of the differences between the Banking Royal Commission was one commissioner, whereas the Aged Care Royal Commission had, had two commissioners 
and they had different recommendations. So the, the political context is very different. Plus, the, the Aged Care uh, Royal Commission generated a lot of media coverage, but it wasn't run as a theatre. Mm. The Banking Royal Commission was run as a theatre um, with deliberate focus on themes where people were, um, uh, were dragged through uh, a process that led to media coverage uh, to an incredible extent. Mm. And just on that, it's becoming apparent now, even in the last week, uh, there has been some things come out that ASIC is starting to knock on some super fund doors about some potential misconduct that just wasn't looked at in the Royal Commission at all. Yeah, look, everyone says the um, the industry funds in particular rather than super funds in general, um, because some of the super funds were very much front and centre for a range of different things. But the industry funds seem to get off scot-free. Um, and, and that's led to a, a, a commentary that's common now that uh, the industry funds came out of the Royal Commission absolutely clean. Mm. And so the uh, release of announcements by ASIC this week about action they're taking against REST, rest and, and, and statewide is interesting because it's putting more context into the reality that things go wrong in all um, parts of society and certainly in all parts of financial services. So that, that's an important part of balance here. Now, we can't, uh, we can't be critical of, of things going wrong because they're always going to go wrong. But what we can be critical of is that the Royal Commission didn't seem to look with the same intent at industry funds. Uh, they seemed to brush over it very quickly when it, there must have been issues in there that they could have picked up. Talking about things that didn't go according to plan, can you fill us in about, you know, for those of us who are not across the nitty gritty, where's FASIA at? Like, what do we, what do you see with that going forward? Yeah, so FASIA, uh, we had the announcement in December, uh, joint announcement between the Treasurer uh, and our Minister, um, Jane Hume, where they have basically said that they're going to push ahead with the single disciplinary body, uh, an idea of um, recommendation 2.10 from the Royal Commission, uh, it's going to um, lead to legislation being introduced later in the first half of this year. Uh, we should see an exposure draft uh, on, on that in the next month or so. And it will ultimately, uh, once implemented, lead to FASIA being closed down. FASIA's responsibilities will then be transferred to both ASIC in terms of administration of, uh, of certain things like the exam and the whole disciplinary regime, and also back to Treasury in terms of the policy-related issues, which ultimately will mean that the, the Minister will have more say in a, in a policy context. Um, we think this has got to be done uh, in a careful and considered way. Um, FASEA is responsible for running the exam, and this is the last year of the exam. Uh, uh, on, the, on the current legislation. We certainly want advisors to get as much support as they possibly can for the remainder of this year so that as many of them get through uh, as possible. We also see the single disciplinary body as a great opportunity to rationalise the excess 
and the duplication in financial advice. So we're talking about rationalising the number of regulators that we have, about rationalising the number of codes that people need to comply with and different rules and, and contradictory rules. So that at the end of this process, we have a greater level of regulatory certainty so people can act with more confidence, knowing that what they will do will pass the test not only today, but if someone comes and has a look at what they did today in five years' time, it will pass again in five years' time. And another area where things are being synced down is obviously the renewal statements. What's going on there in the annual renewal statement space? So that legislation was passed in the Senate uh, last week. Uh, it's received royal assent. It starts on the 1st of July this year. There's a 12-month transition arrangement and it's pretty complex. It would take me a little bit of time to explain. Oh, I could, yeah, I got lost in the detail, hence why <laughs> you're getting this wonderful question now, Phil. So um, so it does start and, uh, and by, uh, in the course of that first 12 months, all clients will need to receive a new annual renewal fee disclosure statement, which will talk to the fees and services provided in the last 12 months and the services to be provided in the next 12 months and the fees to be paid in the next 12 months. Uh, so it's going to be a more comprehensive one. It's going, to, it's going to be a merge document. We've got one now. It's going to be fee disclosure statement and opt-in together. The further complication, though, is that client consent forms will need to be provided to product providers where fees are being taken out of the product account on an annual basis. So the detail is still to be worked out in terms of the regulatory guidance, the templates that ASIC are going to expect people to comply with. So we've got a very challenging few months uh, as we approach the 1st of July to know the detail of how this is going to work. We don't, um, I guess, stand back from the fact that this is going to add significantly to the workload of advisors and the people in their offices in the production of these fee disclosure statements. It's all going, also going to mean that clients are going to need to more frequently um, sign documents, maybe multiple documents. Um, whether this is in the interests of clients, I think, is questionable, but the law has been passed, so we have to now work uh, to ensure that advisors understand what they need to do and can uh, get it in place and deliver it in a way that is, um, uh, is compliant and it's not going to lead to further problems. So if I can jump in the weeds and ask you some questions about the annual renewal statements, um, do we know that it will be suitable, for example, uh, for somebody to say in the statement, your feed this year is $2,000 or $2,200? including GST, next year it will be inflation or 3%, whatever's higher or lower. Like, is there a detail of how cute we can get with making it as easy as possible? Or do you think advisors will just go, hey, we're doing, you know, for the first three years that you're a client, it's $2,200 a year. And then we'll just revisit our processes in a year. Like, have they detailed how much detail we'll need to give and do you see a lot of businesses um, moving from maybe the flat fee back to a, we'll just charge you 0.88 of whatever's in your account or those charging say 0.88, whatever's in your account, moving to a flat fee for ease of administration. I mean, that was just a handful of information, but do you get my vibe, Phil? 
Oh, Glenn, I very much get your vibe on Thanks, that one. Mate. Thanks, But <laughs> But I, I, I think the point is, a, and it's a really good question, when you have a look at it, it's going to be so much easier for advisors who are on a fixed fee arrangement because you just simply tell the client it's going to be $2,200 next year. And by the way, this comes back to how critical it is to get your value pop proposition mm. right, to be, to have your service agreement absolutely spot on, that you know exactly what you're going to do and you then go and deliver that so that when it comes to the time you've got to deliver the fee disclosure statement, you can say, we did everything we promised to do. So that's one part of getting this whole regime right. Now, why asset-based fees are going to become more problematic is because in giving a estimate of the fee for the next year, it's going to be much more difficult for an asset-based fee model than it is for a fixed fee. If it's going to be you know, $200 a month, it's going to be $200 a month. That's not going to change. If it's going to be 0.8% plus GST of your account balance, then I need to talk to you about are you planning on making any big contributions? Are you planning on making any big withdrawals? And, and the, the explanatory memorandum to the bill even talked about needing to take into account asset-based fee withdrawals. Mm. So um, we, we'll have to wait for further guidance on the level of detail. But if you needed to actually model it on a month-by-month -month basis, that would just be ridiculous. Now, I know that generally you're in trouble if you under-disclose fees and commissions, okay? But if you over-disclosed what you collected from a client, is that an issue? Like, can we see these documents saying, hey, over the next 12 months, yeah, we're going we're gonna to charge you 10 grand, in brackets, it won't be that. Like, how cute can we get with this? Yeah, look, I, I don't think that's cute. <laughs> Yeah, and one one I, way of describing yeah, it. I love that I'm not I'm an advisor anymore. Them, yeah. yeah, I love that I'm not an advisor. <laughs> and and um, one thing I should point out is there is no flexibility in fee disclosure statements at the moment if you make a mistake. Right. So even if, if you overshoot the runway, even if you overshoot, even if you say um, you paid two thousand two hundred and ten dollars when they only paid two thousand two hundred dollars, ten dollars is enough to invalidate your fee disclosure statement. Yeah, it's wow. non-compliant. Now, what we're talking about here is not looking back. What you're talking about is looking forward. Absolutely. And look, I, I think that uh, on, you know, you can always renegotiate the arrangement during the course of the year, but the client's got to sign it. Mm. So there are, there are situations in which you may have changed the fee, you may have charged them more than you uh, promised at the start, but the client agreed to it. There may also, uh, when it's an asset-based fee, be something that's changed fundamentally during the course of the year. And they may have received an inheritance that they didn't know about, or they may have, uh, for example, their, their car broke down and they had to buy a new car yeah. and they withdrew money for it. So as long as you have gone through the process of, uh, of doing the estimate and you've got the documentation to back it up, I think you'll be fine. If you overshoot the mark because you, you, you can't be bothered going through the process of estimating, then I don't know that you are necessarily protected because you've quoted a figure that's higher than the actual outcome. Yeah, because I'm just thinking like with uh, efficiencies and templates, because everyone uses templates. We, we're not going to say people don't use templates, but like, you know, if the um, just maybe a range or something like that. But I guess 
I want to kind of say like when I had my business and, you know, I, I sold it two years ago, um, I came to the view with my fee paying clients, and this was before this annual renewal, that I didn't do um, opt-in, I just did annual documents like the, the law saying now because as an advisor I got to the point where if you don't value paying me and if I'm not seeing you once a year I don't want your money anyway and I think it's this old guard that needs to change about having these cash cows that are just printing money with low service to this mindset of I charge my client they value my advice, they value paying, and they've got no problem signing. Yeah, look, really, really quick response to that. Um, absolutely agree. Yeah, we, uh, as a profession, financial advice has been scarred by the fee for no service scandal. And I, I think there's, there's all sorts of questions as to uh, the extent of the real underlying problem, as opposed to what has been reported in those multi-billion dollar numbers that we seem to hear from time to time. Um, but going forward, uh, it, we simply have to ensure that um, clients are getting what they pay for and, and ultimately with the FASEA code, you've got to be able to demonstrate they've got value for money. Mm. Now, um, I think that's, that's a new mindset and I think it's appropriate. And I think it does speak to mindset more than execution of a document to get a client to sign. And certainly what we see in businesses, you know, those businesses that are high performing, they really cleanly understand why their advice means something to somebody. So they've sort of sat back, they've had a niche and they've said, what does this niche value from the service I'm providing? They get very specific on that. And just on that, um, you know, we are doing this podcast with an insurance lens. What does it mean for risk trail commission? Are we going to have to see risk only clients with uh, trailing commission having to sign some type of annual agreement? So the answer is in terms of the Corporations Act, no, if you're not paying a fee, if the only payment the client is making is a premium on their life insurance, out of which commissions are paid, then that is not considered an ongoing fee arrangement and the law has not been changed and I don't expect it to change. Mm. Yeah. So, so from that perspective, I don't believe that uh, it's going to happen in the future anytime soon that uh, risk-only clients would be drawn into the annual renewal model. The other proviso, though, is the FASEA Code of Ethics has talked to the need to get consent from clients to the ongoing service arrangement, um, which I think is standard four, and the ongoing... Um, payments, which is standard seven. Now, I think they are asking for a once-off um, confirmation if there is not already written confirmation that the clients are happy with the arrangement. Now, we have been challenging that, and I think that is to some extent an unresolved issue as to to what extent advisors need to get renewed consent under the FASEA code for risk-only clients. And I think that if, you've, if it's a long-term relationship that you've had with the client and you've got them to sign an SOA in the past or um, you've got more recently a, an engagement letter, then you should be fine. But if you've acquired 
uh, a book of clients and you haven't necessarily delivered an SOA in your own name, then there's still a question mark as to whether there's going to be a need for some renewal uh, activity to take place. I think in, the, in terms of the FASIA code, it's, it's set as a once-off, not as an ongoing uh, requirement, but it's, a rem- it's an outstanding issue that needs to be crunched. I've got two more questions about the annual renewal. Uh, for those that might be newer advisors, from what I understand from FOFA days, if you were charging $5,000 a year and you're taking two and a half grand um, from a product, two and a half grand bundled from commission, that would bring the insurance commission into that document still? No, if you only need to disclose in the fee disclosure statements the, the products where there is a fee being taken out of. So you didn't need to disclose grandfathered commissions in fee disclosure statements and you did not need to disclose uh, trail commissions that you might have received... From a risk policy? From a risk policy. So would that... But but you know, a lot of advisors took the view that it was better to be um, uh, transparent mm. in, in the fees that they were, were receiving. So they chose to disclose the commissions they received on life insurance that they did not um, necessarily legally need to disclose. And this is the interesting thing um, because for me that was a licensee requirement and often it's the licensee's level of best practice is actually a little bit higher than the law because as far as the law was concerned, an ATP document doesn't exist. But the, the licensees wanted that document, right? That's true. I mean, the, the authority to proceed is a critical document, uh, but it's not recognised uh, in in the law, in the Corporations Act, but neither is a fact-find document. Yeah. The, they, they talk to um, the need to know your client, um, which implies a fact-find, but it's not, it's not like a statement of advice, which there is m- multiple sections of the Corporations Act that talk to the requirements of. Because I guess it's uh, it's quantifying the information. So I could have a two-hour verbal conversation with my client and really get to know them, but the fact find actually gets that information and puts it in boxes. <laughs> yeah, and that's not to under, uh, underplay the importance of, uh, of the notes that you take out of that two-hour conversation or potentially the recording mm. you have of that of that conversation that you can then use to prove that Mm. you did understand the client's situation. I've got one more question on annual renewal and then Danny might jump into some, maybe some some questions. Oh, look out. Do you think it is a slight overreach for the legislation to say the annual renewal documents has to go to the product provider? I do. Because I want to say why I think I... I can probably buy um, the super trustees wanting that. I I could probably buy that. But if you've got ordinary money out of super, I I, I don't see the – I don't get it. If the client is signing that um, application or whatnot. So my view on this is that financial advisors are a regulated um, stakeholder in the financial services industry and super funds and, uh, and REs should be able to rely upon another regulated entity. So why if advisors have to um, get clients to renew every year, does that information need to be shared with the product providers? Why can't they just rely upon the fact that the advisor has it 
And why can't they just build that into their agreement with the licensee? That's my starting position. Obviously, the law um, has now changed. And we know also that there's been a lot of pressure put on on, on super funds uh, to ensure that they have controls in place to make sure that um, clients are, are being uh, charged for services that they're getting and that those fees are reasonable. Because, you know, 50% of this crap is optics management, isn't it? It is. And, and you'd ask the question of, I mean, one thing that I, I've been talking about recently is I believe there's a silent voice in the whole debate about financial advice, a silent voice being existing clients and existing clients who have had a long-term relationship with their advisor and, and value what they get from them and implicitly trust them. Now, research has recently been done by Core Data and IWF that proves this point. Existing clients are not saying, I want to renew my agreement every year. They're not saying that I want you to provide a consent form to my product provider every year. Mm. In fact, they're saying, why do we have to go through this process every year? Why do we have to sign so many different forms? Unfortunately, this silent voice, the most critical voice in this whole debate is not being listened to and we collectively as a profession need to do more to bring that voice to the attention of the politicians that are making all these decisions. Because if as an advice community and a profession, you know, we're halfway there of everyone passing the bar and we'll call it the bar, we're all professionals now, well, some of this paperwork should be removed because we're professionals and we can be trusted. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a broader point there, Glenn, about um, recognising professional judgement, that advisors should be recognised as a profession and they should be allowed to demonstra demonstrate professional judgement. They shouldn't have to document everything in minute detail quite the way that they now are, particularly if you talk about the best interest duty, safe harbour, seven steps. What if we actually said you guys can be trusted because you're a profession and we can allow you to go on and do your job as efficiently as possible. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that as time goes on, the pendulum can come back to a more balanced approach. And I guess we need some proof points mm. that the professionalism has enhanced and that all the regulation has done its job and then maybe, you know, the noose might loosen a little bit. And on that, because you're now through your question quota, I believe. I know, yes. I'm so like... Yeah, he's good at adding up, which is why yeah, he's no right. longer an advisor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this is so Danny, she's the co-host. I've <laughs> 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 been waiting very patiently yeah. in the corner, everyone. Yeah. So one of the checkpoints that we have pending is the effectiveness of lift. Ooh, I've been, waiting. I've been waiting for the lift part of this. You only need one this. good question, Glenn. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put my microphone down and just get so, some popcorn and enjoy yeah. this. So give us the highlight reel of lift to start with and then might get you to dive into what we can expect when we have the check-in um, that's coming in 2022. Uh, so lift uh, really grew out of... ASIC Report 413, which was released in October 2014, uh, which demonstrated 37% uh, of the files didn't comply. Um, interestingly, though, 93% uh, of those files that were, where the advisor was remunerated on a hybrid commission basis were compliant. And that was 
something that we argued strongly at the time. So step forward, we had the financial system inquiry, we then had uh, the Trowbridge inquiry, that led into the LIF recommendations, uh, which the government announced first in June of 2015, they re-announced in November of 2015, it became legislation in February of 2017, and it started on the 1st of January 2018, when the cap at that stage was 80% year one, 20% year two. It dropped to 70% in 2019 and then to 60% in, uh, in 2020. When Hain had a look at life insurance, he said he wanted to have a look at the issue of underinsurance. He was, he was quite skeptical about underinsurance, um, but it was clear that he probably didn't fully understand what LIF was because he talked about it being a cap on level commissions. It is not a cap on level commissions, it's a cap on upfront commissions. But he put um, a lot of stake in the ASIC review that was required to be done in 2021, and that's what we're playing with now. ASIC in their review are looking at a bunch of files from 2017, and then they're gonna compare those with files that they collect later this year. Now, at the moment, they're finalising the um, collection process for the 2017 files. They'll start doing a review of that, and later this year, they'll start to call, again, files from 2021, which is supposed to be advice provided after LIF is fully implemented. ASIC are saying that the report will not be available until the end of 2022, at some stage in the second half of 2022. So we do have a little bit of time. Now, we've also had uh, some comments made by the opposition and, um, and more recently uh, reinforced this week uh, at, a, at another event. The opposition have said that they have a predisposition to the removal of conflicts, but they haven't made up their mind when it comes to uh, life insurance commissions and that they're not going to make up their mind until the ASIC review is released at the end of next year. The government is more balanced and say, well, they do not see uh, a, a reason or justification for the removal of life insurance commissions. I think that we'll wait and see this process play out. I think another interesting part of this whole debate is the timing of the next election and who might be uh, the government that receives that report from ASIC uh, at the end of next year. I believe that uh, there's a very compelling argument for the retention of life insurance commissions. All the research says that, uh, that clients aren't prepared to pay anywhere near the cost of, of life insurance advice if they're prepared to pay anything at all. We know when we compare the Australian environment to the international environment, uh, those who have, and there are very few who have done anything to restrict commissions in other jurisdictions, uh, it's decimated the volumes through, through those um, channels. Uh, there's no international basis to argue that life insurance commissions should be banned, which is interesting because one of the terms of reference for the Royal Commission was to consider international um, uh, uh, jurisdictions to see what they were doing. Now, I don't think that Hain Royal Commission did that. I don't think they looked at whether annual renewal was a requirement in the US or the UK. And they certainly didn't look at, at what the situation was with commissions in other jurisdictions. And interestingly, if you look internationally, insurance is often considered a social good. And yet it's something that, you know, isn't really 
when you look at, I guess, the conversations that are happening and the amazing amount of claims the industry pays every year, it's a bit frustrating for people who are passionate about the profession that it's not seen in that same light. That's that's true, but look, I think there's been a lot of good work that's been uh, been done by the um, by a range of people, a range of the insurers, um, Cali, which is a collective that works um, uh, for the insurers. Could you uh, give us a little bit of an insight into that collective? And now I know that there was a report done by that collective, but yeah, if you could give everyone a little bit of a background into what that is. Oh, so so Cali is a, is a group that works for um, choice in in life insurance. So the argument is is not that um, we everyone should be paying via commission, but they should have the ability to choose. And if they want to pay a fee, they can pay a fee. If they want to pay via commission, they should be able to do that. Uh, the Cali group uh, commissioned NMG Consulting, which is a, a, um, a consulting firm with expertise in financial services and. Uh, actuarial background. And they did a very detailed review of um, what was, I I guess, the community's expectation about what the benefit of life insurance should be and whether that's currently what they have. And it did talk to the fact that even on the basis of a conservative assessment of what they need, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that they were going to um, live the rest of their life with wagyu um, steaks every night, but that it was going to be a comfortable existence after a life insurance event. And they basically concluded that the majority of Australians don't have anywhere near as much insurance as they would need to achieve what they considered to be the community expectation. So it it strongly spoke to the importance of retaining. Um, a palatable charging system. Yes, and and they also highlighted the fact that, strangely enough, in Australia, all three channels are under duress at the one time. Now, we don't like to talk about direct, but we recognise that the group channel is an important mechanism for many Australians to get access to insurance, even though it is fundamentally, in most cases, Inadequate. I mean, averages show that... But it's better than nothing if someone can't get anything. Well, that's that's absolutely right. It's better than nothing. And, um, and it's a way to at least have something that you can then choose personally to move on to get advice, to get the level of insurance that you actually need. So we think all of the channels you know, are under threat at the moment and we need to... Which creates a problem for the government. It, ultimately, it will. And, and that's that's why I think this whole process is about better understanding how life insurance works and better understanding the important role that it plays in protecting those in our society who experience a life insurance event. ASIC, do we know if they're going back to the same licensees to get some type of reference point on how they review the documents, the SOAs? Uh, no, look, I think ASIC have um, been sharing with us their methodology. Uh, and so there's been dialogue there. Okay, um, that's cool. And we do understand, uh, and um, ASIC, I think, provided a bit of a brief at our conference in October last year. They have gone out there very broadly. I, I understand it is something like 150 licensees, between 120 and 150 licensees that have received notices to provide um, files. This is, I'm talking about the 2017 benchmark. Yeah. 
and uh, each file is each advisor who's impacted might be providing a one, two, or three files. They're not being provided with a, a huge number of files, um, but it's very broad. It's been done in a way that is very random. Um, yeah. Okay. But it's it's designed to uh, as a proportionate basis to identify people who might be suitable candidates to provide files. There's been a bit of chatter out there, and I assume that it's greater than the email that I received from Risk Info uh, that Peter Sobel's runs about this uh, 80-20 thing. Is the discussion gone, or is there still hope that after this review, uh, we can have a good run at getting um, the rates maybe at 80-20? Okay, so what I'd say is uh, answer this on a few levels. Firstly, the fact that LIF existed and that ASIC was going to do a review in 2021 probably saved us from uh, Hain recommending... No commission. No commission. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So we've got to look at that. We, you know, we've got to try and find the, the upside. That, that was the only Christmas miracle in the RC for a risk advisor. <laughs> it, it, it was. And look, um, it meant that it was... Put all, all of the stake was put in, in the ASIC review. So, uh, and we also know that the ALP, uh, the alternative government, uh, are starting this exercise with a, a, a predisposition but an uh, but a incomplete um, review of the policy. I think what we've got to do is we've got to focus on our first target. Now, our first target is making sure that the advice that is provided this year is of a high quality, and that goes out to everyone. Everyone in, in, um, in the risk advice space has a role to play. When files are called for, we want them to be good quality files, and we want to make sure, therefore, that we get through this review, and ASIC, uh, when they send, send their report to government, the results are good. If we get that, nothing um, will, will happen to make it worse. It also helps in the debate to say, okay, we've looked at the issue of inappropriate incentives, we've looked at the issue or, or the lack of issue of churn, but we've confronted it and it is not a problem. Now we have to look at the combination of two issues, the cost of providing financial advice and the remuneration that's available to provide life insurance advice. And if we can take back to the government after we've got through the LIF review that the cost is too high and the remuneration is too low, the government thus needs to do something to either reduce the cost or increase the commission. And so on that, Phil, what are your thoughts? Because another very common conversation topic where there's a lot of confusion is around like scaled advice to try and address that cost hurdle. What are your thoughts around that? I know it's a big... <laughs> It's a big thought bubble, but what can people do to swim between the flags at the moment? Do you, like, there's a lot of people who won't provide the scaled advice because they're nervous that they won't do it in a compliant manner. What would your advice be to them? And what do you think about the future holds on it? Are there changes coming down that will help make that a more, more comfortable option for advisors? So there's a combination of things here. There's um, compliance with the best interest duty. And do you genuinely understand the client's circumstances to provide that advice? So where limit advice comes in is it adds the um, opportunity to restrict the fact-finding process, restrict 
the, um, the, I guess, the, the advice process, restrict in terms of the recommendations that are provided and restrict the implementation. So it's, it's the, the um, option it does provide is to reduce the cost, but you need to have confidence to do that. Now, where it comes in is compliance with the best interest duty and compliance with the FASIA code of ethics. Both of those are presenting challenges at the moment in terms of having regulatory certainty to know you can confidently provide limited scope advice. And ASIC have uh, recognised this. ASIC report, uh, consultation paper 332 on promoting access to affordable financial advice has got a really big focus on limited advice. And they are seeking guidance on what needs to be done to give more confidence. And ultimately that's the outcome that we want, is that people can do this knowing that they can limit the work that they do to reduce the cost, knowing that their advice will still be deemed to be in the best interest of the client. And it give advisors a real chance to become specialist in a really particular area and probably provide great advice for that particular need. Yeah, but but let's let's be very serious here that um, there's a balance here, and you've got to get the balance right in terms of the efforts you go to to understand the client's circumstances, and if you discover something, making sure that you at least bring it to their attention, even if you cannot provide the solution for them. Yeah, which is the catch-all with um, best interest duty, basically. If, you know, if you can't do it, you've got to refer out. But don't get a fee for that referral and we don't have time for that. <laughs> uh, we need to wrap this up, Danny. I thought we could finish on um, just a, a, a comment. Uh, it's an industry podcast, this. Uh, you do work closely with the FPA. What's that like day to day? Oh, we work very closely with the FPA. We have a, a joint AFA-FPA task force that is working on life insurance with the primary objective of of helping to put forward the advisor end of the argument on why it is critical to retain life insurance commissions. So we work closely on that. But but the dialogue is um, is on a regular basis and, and we talk uh, on issues broader than just life insurance. Um, I, I think that's important that, that we can uh, reach joint views and we can work together in our advocacy to provide a united um, message to government, and we have done that in the past. We have uh, had joint meetings with uh, we, with important politicians. Mm. I have one sail away question for a new entrant, considering or someone who's going. Look, I'd I'd really like to be an advisor. What would you say to that person about the industry now and into the future? You know, what what would your words of advice be? I would say that this is a very interesting time to come into financial advice. At the moment, it's under a level of duress, but clearly through COVID, it has been recognised that financial advice is a critical service that adds huge value to Australians right across the spectrum. Now, we have a, an interesting dynamic in that we're, we're working off the back of the Royal Commission and a history, I guess, of, of some scandals. But we have the opportunity in front of us now that the pathway to professionalism is clearly set out to gain recognition for the profession that we are and that therefore into the future, it will be a fantastic opportunity. And, and when you look at financial advice, 
the relationships that financial advisors have with their clients are superior to all other relationships. They share more information, they share more life experiences, they place more reliance and more trust in their financial advisor than any other profession. So there is great value in this, as great um, worth to individuals, great sense of seeing what they're delivering. Uh, we just have to make sure that the business model behind it works and we can ensure that we have a strong, sustainable and, and vibrant financial advice profession for the future. Yeah, so it's certainly evolved to a whole new level of strength. It's still a very vibrant profession from the businesses you know, I spend time with and it's um, a lot of people are incredibly passionate about the industry and the profession. So you are certainly one of them, Phil. So we thank you so much for coming in and sharing your wisdom and sharing your knowledge and also to Zurich and OnePath for making this all happen. And thanks, Glenn, for your cavalcade of questions. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Phil. Thank you. Great oh. to be here. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.